We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect, there are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Welcome to another Run It Back edition of the Roadwire NBA podcast. This week, we turn the clock back 20 years to June 4th, 2000 for Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals between the Portland Trailblazers and the Los Angeles Lakers. This, of course, is Shaq and Kobe on the way to their first of three straight titles to begin the millennium. Portland is led by Rasheed Wallace, David Stoudemire, an aging Scottie Pippen, and an even more aging Arvidas Sabonis. If you're listening to this, pretty good chance you know how this game ends, but it was really fun to go back and watch from start to finish. Maybe not a vintage Shaq and Kobe performance, but this game gave us maybe their most iconic single play of their entire run together. So we we dove really deep on these rosters, what was going on around the league at the time. Uh, a lot of sympathy for Brian Grant, who had to guard Shaq at times in this game and kind of how it all relates to the Lakers vanquishing this Blazers team that was actually the favorite in Vegas to win the title coming into the 99-2000 season. As always, it was a lot of fun to look back and kind of reminisce on what are some of the formative years of our NBA fandom. So I think you'll really enjoy this one. I have Alex and James standing by. Let's dive in. Just walked in front of me. Are you kidding me? 
Alex Barutha, James Anderson are on the line. Another NBA run it back. This time we go all the way back to the 2000 Western Conference Finals. Game seven between the Portland Trailblazers and the Los Angeles Lakers. Guys, this was a really, really fun series. Uh, L.A. was up 3-1 in the series at one point. They won game one, lost game two, won games three and four, uh, end up losing game five at home, get blown out uh, in game six in Portland. And the Lakers really didn't play all that well in this game. The Blazers played, I thought, really well for about 3.2 quarters and really struggled in the fourth. Um, But I think the biggest takeaway for me from this game, very rough night for Brian Grant. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there was there were too many quality rotation players on this Blazers team. Uh, it kind of reminded me a little bit of that 14-15 Kentucky team where, like, on a normal team, you, you had, like, 10 guys on this Blazers team that should be in the rotation. But if you were trying to win a Game 7 Western Conference Finals game, the rotation probably should have been shortened to about seven guys and Brian Grant was definitely one of those guys that you know back in that era was considered you know a borderline starting caliber center I mean he, he definitely wouldn't be that in this era but um like they I feel like they sort of felt like they had to give him minutes and for some reason did not feel compelled to give Jermaine O'Neal minutes I mean I know Brian Grant weighed more than Jermaine O'Neal, but Jermaine O'Neal played better and seemed like he was clearly the better player. So I just, I feel like there were too many guys in Dunleavy's rotation and Brian Graham's definitely one of them. I did not necessarily have a problem with them playing Brian Grant for the sole factor that they really had no other option. And they, they note early in the broadcast that no team has defended Shaq better throughout the season than the Portland Trailblazers. And even including this series, I think Shaq went for 41 in game one. But other than that, they had really kept him under control. And a big part of that was Arvita Sabonis being 7'3", 300 pounds. But he picks up two early fouls in this game. They're forced to go to Brian Grant, who immediately picks up two fouls. Jermaine O'Neal picks up a couple fouls early on. And you look at the rest of the roster, like that's really the only true big guys that Portland had. I mean, they, they have a very old, like 37-year-old Detlef Schrempf um, who's really more of a, a stretch four and not a guy who's going to bang with Shaquille O'Neal, of all people. So I, I think they were kind of in a really tough situation where as soon as Sabonis picked up his third and fourth fouls, um, you know, they, they had no other option. And Brian Grant, like you said, James, was just completely overmatched. I don't know that Jermaine O'Neal would have done a better job. Brian Grant, uh, you know, weighed more than Jermaine O'Neal, but at least the athleticism and, and the height advantage that Jermaine O'Neal had I, I would have liked for, for Portland to try him out a little more than the little over six minutes he played in this game. Yeah, my, my argument's just that either one of O'Neal or Grant, take your pick. They're both just going to get steamrolled. You have to automatically double team no matter which guy you have out there. At least Jermaine O'Neal can make a shot on them. I was pretty impressed with what we saw from a very young Jermaine O'Neal in the, the short time that he was out there. I uh, had a massive block on Kobe in the first half, a borderline goaltend, but one where he got way up there. I mean, I... I guess thinking of like Indiana peak Jermaine O'Neal, I never thought of him as this like outstanding athlete, but I mean, he's really, really moving around well out there at this point in his career. He's, he's 21 at this point, he's in his fourth NBA season. And, you know, I, I think as someone who at the time was like seven years old when this was happening, like, I don't really remember the beginning to Jermaine O'Neal's career, but considering the fact that he ended up going to six consecutive all-star games from 02 to 07 it's kind of astounding that he basically just rotted on the bench for four full seasons in Portland. 
Yeah, I mean, I understand they were. I mean, was it did his time overlap with Sabonis's time? Is that kind of what happened? Because I know Sabonis came in when he was like, um, just double checking this now. Yeah, Sabonis joined the Blazers in ninety five, ninety six as a thirty one year old. Yeah. So I guess their time kind of overlapped, but you would think that if you know he was playing most of his time, he was only playing you know twenty four, twenty five minutes a game. Sabonis was. You would think you could just run him and O'Neal as kind of a one two punch at center. Um, but O'Neal was consistently getting like ten minutes a game through through that stretch. That was a really good acquisition by the Pacers to just kind of take advantage of uh, the fact that the Blazers had not maximized that asset at all. Like, I mean, they, they used a high pick on him, and they just never really developed him. And then they they like basically just got nothing for him, and then he turned into a one of the better big men in the league. I mean, I, I totally agree. Like. Brian Grant, like, there was just kind of an obsession during this era of just making sure you had enough big men and enough guys with size and stuff, but he wasn't really giving you anything. Yeah, they end up trading Jermaine O'Neal after this season for essentially straight up for Dale Davis, who had been an all-star the year before, averaging 10 points and 9.9 rebounds and really doing (laughs) nothing else whatsoever. Um, like sub 70% free throw shooter, not a, not an outstanding field goal percentage by any means for a center. So that kind of speaks to, to where the league was at talent wise, you know, in the couple of years after, after Jordan left. But yeah, I think you're right, James. They, they took O'Neal with the 17th pick and just never really saw it through. It, it kind of reminds me in some ways of like what Sacramento is doing with Harry Giles. And, you know, Giles is a little bit different because he had the injury history, but you know, they're not picking up his his fourth year option. Like it, it just seems like every time he has a good stretch of games, he ends up playing five minutes the next night. Um, and, you know, we, we weren't there watching night in and night out, you know, how Jermaine O'Neal is developing. But um, just just seems like they kind of squandered what, what would have been a really probably pretty easy and cheap opportunity to re-sign him after after really not exposing him much in those first four years. But I think the other point to mention with O'Neal is he came in out of high school at age 18 in 1996 when a lot of guys weren't doing that. So I don't think there was like a huge expectation for this guy to play right away um, based on how the league was operating at that time. That was kind of the era where, I mean, it's, it was, you know, post up game. It was, everyone was huge and coming in, I think as an 18 year old during that era, you know, w- with probably not lifting weights. And I mean, he wasn't big at this in this game at all. And he was older. I think that was a much harder era to jump in as like a, uh, 18 year old, maybe not as much from a talent perspective, just from a physicality perspective. Like I think, I think it would be easier now for high schoolers, 18s and 19 year old kids to come in and, and have some success in the league. Like it was back then. So Rashid Wallace throughout his career only made four all-star games. They were spaced out uh, quite a bit. He, he made two early on in Portland and then two later in his career with Detroit. Uh, like I said, Jermaine O'Neal went to six consecutive all-star games I feel like I remember Rasheed Wallace as the better player, but is is that incorrect? Like, was Jermaine O'Neal actually no. better than Rasheed Wallace? No, Sheed was way better. Uh, okay, the good. Part, part of the reason he didn't make a ton out West is he, like, the media hated him. He hated the media. Uh, and then he was also just playing in the Western Conference when power forward was, like, as low as it's ever been out there. So he just... Uh, kind of needed to switch conferences to, to start making them. I mean, Jermaine O'Neal wouldn't have made those all-star teams if he was in the West. Yeah, I, I think Wallace almost came into the league at like 
the most inopportune time possible. I mean, having to go up with like as soon as Wallace came into his own, KG was a superstar. Tim Duncan essentially a superstar right away. And I mean, those guys very rarely miss time. Essentially, you could lock in Duncan and Garnett to first team all NBA for most of the decade. And C-Web with the Kings. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think Rashid Wallace is probably on the short list of guys, maybe not from a personality standpoint, but uh, just from a skills standpoint, like he's on the short list of guys who would have benefited the most if he had been in this era versus the era he played in, because I just think his game would have translated so, so well as a, as a stretch five uh, because of his defensive versatility. And like, I mean, he, he hit a couple uh, I think he had one three and then maybe another couple long twos in this game. And like his, his stroke is just so pure. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's a really, really good shooter. And uh, he was kind of passing up a lot of threes in this game. And he was really good, obviously at, at what he did with those kind of mid range turnaround jumpers from the baseline. But uh, today I think he would have been stretching and probably would have been kind of like the player that, you know, you sort of wish like Jaron Jackson Jr. would become uh, defensively. I mean, Rasheed Wallace was just such a good defender. That's that's part of the reason why I think they defended Shaq so well. Like, I, I don't think Brian Grant and Jermaine O'Neal really factor into the equation. I think it's just having Sabonis be that guy that can kind of match Shaq from a, a weight standpoint and then having Sheed as that help defender that would just always come and help and double uh, – you know, just the length that those two guys would provide, I think was kind of unmatched by any other team. I think you're completely right about how Rashid would translate to today's game. In in this season, 99-2000, 27% of his field goal attempts are coming from 16 feet out to three-point range. And another 14% are coming from 10 to 16 feet. So that's almost half of his shots, um, you know, coming in, in a place where you just don't see most guys taking any shots. And, you know, at that point, he under 5% of his field goal attempts were coming from beyond the arc. And later in his career, in the mid-2000s with Detroit, we kind of started to see, you know, him be one of those first guys to to step out and really start taking a lot of threes. Like, 05, 06, 41% of his field goal attempts come from beyond the arc. And, I mean, that's just a, a massive, massive jump from where he was at just six years earlier. And I, I think had he started that transition, you know, in 98, 99, instead of 05, 06, we probably remember him quite a bit differently. And, and his numbers, I think, look quite a bit better. Like He's a guy who never even averaged 20 points a game in, in any individual season. A lot of the beat writers, like for uh, the Blazers from back then, like there was just sort of this constant theme that he never shot as much as the beat writers thought he should, as much as kind of the national media thought he should. And he was just sort of, like too passive on that end of the court in the regular season. And so I think that that like, he, he could have been like a 25 point per game guy if he had ever desired to shoot that much. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'd like the Jaron Jackson jr. Comparison where it's a guy who's great on the defensive end who can score a bit inside, but you can use him outside as well. He can be a four or a five, create some mismatches with the other team's front court. Um, and, but not a guy, you know, who, I would project to score 20 points a game either and not necessarily in a, a dominant rebounder, which for that era probably hurt him. You know, people see someone who's 6'10", 225, averaging only, you know, seven rebounds basically in his prime. I think he probably got downgraded for that a little too much. 
Right. And part of it is the pace too at this point. I mean, Portland yeah, is playing yeah. Portland's playing, I think, like over three possessions slower than the league average, even and at a time when teams are playing slowly. So you kinda have to prorate uh that to some degree as well. Staying with Sheed, they mentioned on the telecast that he set the record with thirty eight techs this season, which was more than twice as many as the next highest player. He was kicked out of game one of the series and, and thirty eight techs didn't even end up being his his career season high and he got to 41 i believe a couple seasons later in one of his final years in portland and in doing some research on sheed i maybe you guys know this apparently this was this is somewhat well known i did not know this he was the only player to ever foul out of the mcdonald's all-american game (laughs) i didn't know that (laughs) well there's shades of what was it don maker that had 10 fouls in a summer league game yeah i know demarcus cousins did that as well um, I, I mean, I mean, standard. I knew Sheed was like very infamous for the tech. I didn't <laughs> know that he was infamous for just regular personal foul. Yeah, well, I I was actually really disappointed because I read, uh, I read that he was kicked out of the McDonald's game, and I was like, whoa, this is this is one of the coolest anecdotes of all time. Like nobody's ever been kicked out of the McDonald's game. But the video is available, and it, it actually turns out he he fouls out, and he looks like it kind of looks like he got kicked out because he's like so incensed that he picked up his sixth foul. Um, but he wasn't actually kicked out. He, he was allowed to sit on the bench for the rest of the game. It, it seems way more likely that you oh, would yeah. be kicked out than that you would be actually fouled out. Like, I, do they even call six fouls in a normal right. game? Yeah, that's, I, I actually look, tried to look back and see if anyone else had ever even gotten close. And I had a really hard time finding stats for this game, unsurprisingly. But a couple of years ago, James Wiseman picked up four fouls. So it, it seems like conceivable that someone else could have done it. <laughs> So to set the scene as far as where the NBA is at at this point, um, this kind of meshes well with with everything that's going on with the Jordan documentary. We're now two years removed from Jordan walking away in 98. The Spurs win the lockout shortened year title in 99 over the Knicks. 2000, you know, we're fully past the Jordan era at this point. The Blazers win 59 games this season, the second most. In franchise history, the Lakers win 67 games, also the second most in franchise history. Um, but this is not the year where they have the crazy playoff run. Like the next season, they're a, a significantly worse regular season team, but they they roll through the playoffs, only lose one game. And that was, I believe, game one of the finals uh, against Iverson and the Sixers. But this season, they're basically invincible during the regular season. And they note on the telecast that um, I think it's Bill Walton says like the the air of in, invincibility with this Lakers team is gone because you know they've they've struggled not only to close out this series but really didn't look all that great in rounds one or two either. I mean I think that that you know the West was loaded at that time uh, with teams that had more playoff experience probably than the the Kobe Shaq Lakers and um, yeah I mean it, it was kind of. Like you saw Kobe like airball three early in this game. Like I think there was still some sort of jitters in, in terms of those two. It was kind of like their first real run together as as favorites for the title. So um, I mean I think they just kind of had a monkey to get off their back, and then once they did that, they kind of cruised through uh, some successive playoffs. Yeah, I mean Kobe was only twenty one here, and he's clearly got the you know the the green light. Uh, as the second best player on the team, which does not happen very often when there's also a 27-year-old superstar on the team. Yeah, James, you mentioned that air ball in the second quarter, and that that really set Bill Walton off. Uh, Phil Jackson has to be hugely concerned here. 
Kobe shooting air balls, Derek Fisher shooting air balls, and Shaq is doing nothing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there were, well, okay, so, you know, you had the Kobe air ball. Uh, it was a, it was a, a bad air ball. I mean, it was like a deep three early in clock. Uh, really, really no reason to, to take that shot. Um, I, I actually enjoyed more when I think it was, so one of my least favorite players of all time is Derek Fisher. Oh, same and, here. and, thank uh, you for saying that. And he, he had, I don't think he airballed it, but he just barely grazed anything, I think. And they were, it was like Bill Walton. I think all three of them were actually making fun of Fisher on that shot. Um, like Costas made fun of him on like for like attempting it and stuff. So I, I enjoyed the announcers making fun of Derek Fisher a little bit more. Um, Cause Kobe, it's like he, yeah, he airballed that three, but then I think like four minutes later he, he buried a three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it, just kind of was what it was. I mean, he he was sort of infamous for airballing threes early in his playoff career, but uh, I, w- I was loving the, the Derek Fisher shade a little bit later on. I have a note on that as well, and it, it's funny <laughs> because they're criticizing the shot selection. Like, Derek Fisher is wide open. There's no one, like, there's somebody closing out, but he's, like, six feet away, and it's a terrible shot, obviously, by Fisher. He just, he just completely misses it. It's not clear. Maybe it grazes the rim. It just kind of hits the net and dies, and it's not a bad shot. Like he was wide open, and like Bob Costas, like you said, is like I think his quote was, "That is not the shot they wanted there." Like, what shot did they want? He was wide open. Well, look, I, I mean, if you're gonna, I think being that open and then missing that badly tells you that you shouldn't be taking that shot, right? Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna miss that badly and you're that wide open, then you probably shouldn't take the shot. Like, it, he's know, a career thirty eight percent three point shooter. I, yeah, I mean, I think he, this was very early in his career. I don't think he'd hit a lot of the big shots that like kind of bolstered his reputation later on. I mean, they were basically complaining the entire game about how bad the Lakers were at feeding Shaq. So I'm, I'm yeah. sure they're more more so insinuating like they weren't looking for Derek Fisher to take a shot on that possession. They were looking for them to get Shaq the ball. If it was up to Bill Walton, Shaq would be bringing the ball up and just backing <laughs> Sabonis down from half court. Like he, to be fair, it was kind of strange. I think they went four possessions without Shaq even touching the ball early on. But, but I think Ron Harper hit a couple of jumpers. Kobe hit a jumper. Like it's not like they were just throwing the ball into the stands. Um, but it, it kind of went from the Lakers need to get Shaq the ball to fast forward to mid third quarter. Bill Walden had gone the other way to Shaq is a pussy. He needs to get the ball. Like this is ridiculous. He only has five rebounds. Like he completely turned on Shaq who then ends up having a great end of the fourth quarter. So one of the funniest things I thought of just we're, we're talking about the announcers. You mentioned Bill Walton. Um, I counted and there were four references to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, which, you know, I mean, you'd, you'd expect more than one, maybe less than three uh, with it being a Lakers game. Uh, but there were four Kareem references. Somehow there were three Moses Malone references. Um <laughs> Which, like, not you know, not a Philadelphia 76ers game. I, I don't know how you fit three Moses Malone references into this one. And then uh, there were two Kevin McHale references, um, which I just thought was hilarious. That uh, not just like one of each of those guys, but multiple of all three. <laughs> yeah, no mention of the many superstars who were in the league at the time. You know, maybe a team <laughs> reference would have would have been fitting, but. I mean, I think that most of these were courtesy of Bill Walton, right? Yes, I think I think all of them were. 
Did we identify, this kind of reminds me of the last game we did. Do we identify the third guy in the booth? It's Costas Walton and an unknown man who has at no point is identified. That's Steve Snapper Jones. Steve Snapper Uh, Jones. Okay. That is not a voice I recognize at all. Yeah, he was, it was like him and Costas and then I think Bill Walton sometimes. uh, That was kind of NBC's main booth. Uh, for the like late '90s, I, this was probably towards the very end of Steve Snapper's announcing career. Also interesting, I thought that they had two sideline reporters, one for each team. I don't think that happens really at all anymore. No, I can't. Re- I can't really remember the last time that happened. I mean, they usually just cut. Like, if they're going to use two other, I guess reporters, they kind of they'll like cut to something either before or after the game. I think they usually just nowadays stick to one person on the sideline, kind of roaming around, right? Yeah, right. I like mean, usually, Kristen Ledlow has plenty of time to chat with both coaches, or you know, get a quote from an assistant on each side over the course of you know eight minutes of play or whatever it is between those kind of breaks. Um, the telecast is just so much different, and this isn't that long ago, but you know, now if you watch a game, there are plenty of shots of. Mike Breen, Mark Jackson, JVG sitting at the desk, you know, like during a timeout or something like that, they'll, you know, they'll flash to those guys and you're actually seeing them talk. You're seeing their faces. And part of it could be the way that this video is cut, you know, no commercials, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty clean. Um, But the action is pretty much on the court at all times. Yeah. I mean, if they were doing like a out of commercial shot to the booth of the guys talking for like 30 seconds, I'm sure I got edited out of this version that we watched. Yeah, very possibly. Um, thought it was interesting, and this has kind of been a theme of a lot of the games that we've done from the 90s and early 2000s. A lot of praise for long twos. Sabonis took like five long twos, like the longest possible two that you could take. And no criticism whatsoever from the announcers. Like one of them, they even said, like, that's a great shot for him. His feet well, were on the line. The, the best part is that... Uh... You know, they were they were kind of talking at times about like how effective guys were from certain spots, and like I think it was Steve Stafford Jones was like, "Yeah, but his, his percentages go down the further out he goes." You know, like like <laughs> failing to acknowledge that it's worth an extra point at a certain point. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a reflection of how people thought back then, though. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at if you look at Sabonis's like career, he was taking more threes the first three years of his career. In Portland, he was taking one and a half threes a game, hitting them at like 34%, so that's fine. But then over the next two seasons, he's down to like half a three a game. And in this season, he was taking a third of a three a game. So I don't know if it's like a directive <laughs> from the coaching staff, like, hey, man, like, please put the heels on the three-point line, take not the one toughest. step in. On the one hand, you had Sabonis, like, almost refusing to shoot threes. You had Rashid Wallace passing up threes. Uh, and then on the other hand, you had like Pippen and Steve Smith ripping off the dribble transition threes. Like, so yeah, it was kind of a, uh, it was kind of a, uh, you know, you <clears throat> nowadays, like you see tons of like off the dribble transition threes back then that was extremely rare uh, to pull up on the break from three. And so it was kind of weird to have a guy like Rashid Wallace, who I, I bet if he'd been shooting three threes a game this season i bet he would have been up over like 34 percent probably like it it just looked like he was really good at hitting threes especially from certain spots on the court but he just 
really didn't want them, but yet, like, it was totally cool for Steve Smith and Pippen to just rip off the break threes. Yeah, you can tell how taken aback the booth is when I think it was Pippen who took the first one during Portland's run midway through the first quarter when they kind of get hot and you know they're like whoa Scotty Pippen pulls up from three and like you said that's something you see how many times throughout the course of an NBA game in 2020 like 10 to 15 yeah <laughs> Pippen was awesome like I, I thought he was you know he I think she had the most points but um for at least the first half or so I thought Pippen was the best player on the court I was going to ask you just in general, you know, your, your assessment of Pippen at this point, because he is 34 years old, but he's just two years removed from winning his sixth title in Chicago, you know, being considered widely as a, the top five to 10 player, at least uh, in the NBA. And he'd only played 94 games over the previous two years. You know, as we know from the Jordan documentary, he missed a huge chunk of the 97-98 season while recovering from surgery. So he only plays 44 games that year. And then with the lockout, he only plays 50 the next year. So, you know, even though he went through six very long playoff runs throughout the 90s, you know, I I think there's an argument that he's maybe a little bit more fresh for this season um, than he would have been, you know, had he played 81, 82 games the previous two years. But his numbers go down pretty dramatically as soon as he leaves Chicago. And I I did some reading on, on his one season in Houston and that did not go well. I, I was not aware, really, that that's how things turned out. I mean, he's he's 33 at that point, which at, at this time in NBA history, like 33 is pretty old. You know, there weren't a lot of guys, you know, really at the top of their game at age 33, like we see some players now. Um, but he did not mesh well with old Hakeem and, and old Charles Barkley. Um, and and that, that relationship deteriorated very quickly. But he comes to Portland and ends up playing four years with the Blazers. So he, he has a decent amount left in the tank, even after this season. I mean, he plays three more years in Portland and then one half season in Chicago in 03, 04. Like you said, James, I was very impressed with Pippen, but it did seem like by this point, he wasn't really trying to be like the man for this team. Like he had, he had just kind of accepted uh, at least based on how he played in this game, that he was kind of more of like a super role player for this team. Yeah. I, I to me, what really stood out is just his, how how high the level of defense he was playing was. I mean, you just don't see guys, you know, they're outside, you know, what was this, 14th, 15th season in the league for him? Like, even guys like LeBron and, you know, Kobe to a lesser extent, like guys who were making all defense teams in their prime, like almost all those guys really kind of fall off a cliff defensively after like year 12 year 13 and he was still their best perimeter defender and um i think he just was doing kind of the perfect uh he was playing like the perfect role that made the most sense just on this team i mean just how deep it was i mean rasheed wallace is probably the best player on the team uh but he was just not hurting them anywhere and he was doing a really good job of helping out his teammates. Uh, I thought Damon Stoudemire was pretty awful and they just, they played a lot better whenever Damon Stoudemire was off the court and Pippen or Steve Smith were kind of running the show. And then like you also just, every time there was a dead ball, Pippen seemed to be like trying to calm down like one of his teammates. Like he was basically kind of playing babysitter as well. So I just thought he did a really good job. He actually made the all second or a second all defensive team this season which is, as a 34-year-old, 
I don't know how many guys over 33, 34 are making all defensive teams. Yeah, especially on the wing. Right. Yeah, I, was, I think like Tim Duncan made one pretty late in his career, but quite a bit different when you can kind of plant yourself in the paint to some degree versus being a wing defender. They mentioned too, he in game five of the series, he was terrible in game six, but game five, 22 points, six rebounds, six steals, four blocks, three assists. That is an extremely rare line for playoffs or regular season. Uh, since then, it's only been done five times. Do you want to guess any of the players who have done it? Well, can you say the line one more time? So the parameters are at least um, 20 points, six rebounds, six steals, four blocks, three assists. But Pippen had 22, six, six, four, and three. Wow. Did Duncan do it once? No. A couple two of them were, no. I, I was a little bit surprised. No, but I don't like six steals is a lot of steals. LeBron, yeah, know, not, not a true. huge steals guy. Jordan only did it once. It was back in eighty eight. Six steals. Gary Payton? I was gonna just say that, yeah. No, no, and and we're talking post two thousand. So these happened in oh six, oh seven, thirteen, fourteen, and two thousand nineteen. Oh, I don't think I'm gonna get it. Okay, fair enough. So in 2006, Gerald Wallace, 21 points, mm-hmm. 15 rebounds, eight steals, four assists, four blocks. <laughs> in 2007, Andre Kirilenko, 20 points, 11 assists, 11 rebounds, six steals, four blocks. Anthony Davis did it twice with the Pelicans, once in 2013, once in 2014. And perhaps the most surprising to me, uh, but then when you really think about some of the crazy lines he's had, James Harden, last year against Utah, 43 points. 12 rebounds, six steals, five assists, four blocks. Four blocks are impressive. <laughs> I, I think Harden averaged like a block a game this year, didn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, what? he just, he was guarding. He was like guarding in the post like the entire season. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I think he could average like five blocks a game and I would never think of him as a good shot blocking guard. He, his reputation has fallen too far for that. It's beyond recovery. Well, yeah, he's not. He's not like a vertical athlete either. Like most of the blocks he's going to get are, I feel like, are just going to be barely off the ground somehow, like, or maybe like a surprising weak side. Grabbing yeah. a guy from behind, yeah. Yeah. So the NBA this season, um, like I said, two years removed from Jordan. I, I'd like to know where you guys think the NBA is at talent-wise right now. Um, you have Shaq as the MVP this season, uh, probably his best overall season. He also wins the scoring title for the only time in his career. We have co-rookies of the year, uh, Elton Brand and Steve Francis. First team All-NBA is Jason Kidd, Gary Payton, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, and Shaq. Really, really strong first team. And a really strong second team as well of Allen Iverson, Kobe Bryant, Grant Hill, Carl Malone, and Alonzo Mourning. So, James, where do you where do you think the league is at talent-wise um, in kind of the beginning of this post-Jordan era? I think it's still in a pretty good place this season. And then I think it kind of falls off a cliff from, like, you know, the, the season after this through, like, the next four or five years. I think it, that's that's kind of where it really uh, trends down pretty pretty heavily. But when you still have... Uh, like when you still have guys like Peyton and Kidd and those guys 
in their prime. Plus, you have prime KG, you have prime Shaq, you have prime Duncan, uh, you have Kobe coming into his prime. Like, I think it's in a. I think it's pretty good uh, here. I mean, I think you could argue it's as good here as it was. Uh, you know, maybe in the years where Jordan was playing baseball. Um, I just, I just think the fact that you, I mean, having prime Shaq and like prime KG and, and Duncan, like, I mean, that's three of like the 10 or 12 best players of all time all in their prime, uh, not to mention the, the guards. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's a good read on it. Um, you know, a lot of these, I feel like maybe, you know, the, the era that was the worst was kind of like LeBron's very early years yeah. or like just yep. right before LeBron yep. um, where it was just like a lot of, you know, like Paul Pierce, Steve Francis are these top 10 guys like in the league at that point. Um, you know, Malone is like 39 years old and <laughs> like still a huge part of the league. So, yeah, I think I think it's. I think it falls off pretty quickly, maybe like four years after this. But yeah, 99, 2000, I think was still a pretty great year as far as talent goes. I'm with you guys completely. I think we're probably three years away from a pretty big drop off. I think 0203 is when we start to see a little bit of a slip. And then I, you're probably right with like the start of LeBron's career, like that draft, you know, ultimately ends up kind of replenishing the talent pool. But things really bottomed out for a while, like, you know, 04 through, I would say, 07, 08. Um, and I'm looking at the All-NBA teams right now, and I don't think there's ever a first team that you really say, like, wow, that's really rough. Like, there were always at least five pretty good players or great players, you know, who, like, none of these seem out of place. But when you start to look at some of the second teams in the middle of that 2000s decade, I mean, there was one year where, you know, you had Elton Brand as a second teamer with Chauncey Billups. Um, you know, Gilbert Arenas made an all NBA team. You had Peja Stojakovic, Sam Cassell was second team, all NBA in Oh three, Oh four. Um, but even in those seasons, like first team in Oh three, Oh four is Shaq, Duncan, KG, Kobe kid. You know, you always kind of had that base of, of really great players, but, uh, the depth certainly fell off a, a couple years after this. I, I think where it really shows is, uh, when you get, so basically from 2000, uh, you know, the I'm looking at like who made the finals from the Eastern Conference. Like when you have the Sixers, the Nets, the Nets, the Pistons, the Pistons, like that's brutal. When you when you have the like the AI Sixers team, those those Jason Kidd Nets teams, and then even those two Pistons teams, like that's that's a brutal run of, of best team in a conference. Uh, for a five-year run right there and then you then you have the Wade Heat and the, the LeBron Cavs and the Celtics team so like it it gets better kind of the second half of that decade but that's where it really shows is is out east um, yes. I mean I think the Western Conference this entire like basically since like the Hakeem Rockets like all the way till now the Western Conference has always been pretty loaded but like the, those early 2000s Eastern Conference teams are just terrible yeah, like I'm I'm looking at the 2003-04 like leaders in Vorp. Like Andre Karolinko is second, Peja Stojakovic <laughs> is fifth, Baron Davis sixth, Cassell at 34 is eighth, Marbury's tenth. You have Danielle Marshall is 21st. 
Good like it's God. a yeah, I know it. Like that, that is, was that may have been an especially rough year. Uh, that is a damning it, statistic. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the fact I, I don't want to diss that that Pistons team. You know, I, I think they've really been lionized as like the ultimate team of the last two decades, just like definition of the word team. But they went to six consecutive Eastern Conference Finals. Like that that team, I don't think had the the longevity. They should not have gone to that many is basically what I'm trying to say. They went through three different coaches in that span. I mean, some guys fell off pretty dramatically, you know, as the decade wore on. And they still didn't have all that much trouble kind of breezing their way to 50 plus wins and getting to the East finals every single year. Yeah. I mean, I like, like Chauncey Billups is really the only guy on any of those teams with like a, a hall of fame case, in my opinion. And like, he he wasn't even on some of those. Like I mean, it's just that that should not be the best player on a six straight conference finals team. That's a great way to put it. Where's this is kind of a tangent, but where do you stand on Ben Wallace as a potential Hall of Famer? I don't. I I don't see it personally. Bas- basketball Reference has his probability at forty five point three percent. I lean pretty hard on like all NBA selections because I think that's mm-hmm. usually a good indicator of how you know, impactful someone was for, you know, I mean, everybody has different criteria for voting, but it kind of weeds out the idea of the Eastern and Western conference, which one's better. Five all NBA teams is pretty good. I mean, if you're an all NBA player for five years, I think that's a pretty good case in general for the hall of fame. and should maybe be like a minimum. I mean, everybody talks about how lenient the NBA, you know, hall of fame is or the basketball hall of fame. Um, but four-time Defensive Player of the Year, six-time All-Defensive, five-time All-NBA in general. I I agree that it's close because he was such an abomination on offense, but I I don't know. And the league well, was you know, kind of weak in his prime. Like but if if his prime had been from like ninety-five through two thousand instead of like two thousand through two thousand five, like those All-NBA teams, like. Does he make like two All NBA teams? Like one? Like I, I just, I think he was really taking advantage of uh, the fact that he was playing on like so team. The the voters would look at like how many wins the Pistons had because they're beating up on a on an all time bad Eastern Conference, and then there just weren't many good options. Like you you had guys like Tim Duncan was still an option, but you know, you had other guys sort of falling out of their prime and, and that type of thing. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't, like, I don't really care enough to like be upset or something if he makes it, but just being that bad on offense. I mean, it's not like he was like a Dennis Rodman level defender where he could guard one through five. Uh, I mean, I, I think he was a really good interior defender, but, I mean, I think Rudy Gobert is better than him. I don't think Rudy Gobert is going to make the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, Wallace, to me, I, I would like to see him in because I think there's a, and it's tough to quantify this, but he, he was such a unique, like, iconic player at the time. And you're totally right, James, that he came along at the perfect time. You know, his his peak kind of coincided with Shaq being on the decline. And, you know, he, he really benefited from there just being a dearth of, like, really good centers at that point. Um, and he was kind of able to coast to a lot of the second team, all NBAs because of that. But I mean, he, he was so iconic. And like, I, I think the fact that guys like Mitch Richmond are getting in, like Rasheed Wallace is considered borderline, like 
to me, Ben Wallace has a better resume than Rashid, even if Rashid was a better all-around player, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's so tough. I, I, I have zero question that like Rashid is the better player, like at his best, like mm-hmm. because I mean he was an all-defense caliber player at his best too, uh, and just a ten times better offensive player. But I, I acknowledge that he just, the consistency with him is what holds him back. I mean, he just sometimes he brought it, sometimes he didn't. Like, um, you know, really difficult teammate at times uh i mean it's it's that's a really tough one because i just i think from a skill standpoint from like a pure talent standpoint i don't think it's close i think she's better but i acknowledge that uh, wallace has more uh stuff to point to on his resume so let's dig into the rosters on this game and this is another situation where like the you know warrior suns game that we did last week where you see chris weber playing a lot of point not as extreme this time around, but Kobe Bryant is basically the Lakers starting point guard. And, you know, you kind of think of him as this true shooting guard. You know, he really embodies everything that the shooting guard position is about. But they go, they roll out a pretty big lineup with Shaq, Ron Harper, Glenn Rice, AC Green and Kobe to start. So you have, you know, obviously a guy locked in at center in O'Neal. You have kind of a true power forward in AC Green, um, you know, a bigger wing slash power forward in Glenn Rice and then Ron Harper who's six, six, but not really a ball handler. So a lot of that ends up falling on Kobe. And, you know, you have Brian Shaw as, as kind of the backup point guard off the bench. You have Derek Fisher who plays about nine minutes in this game, but you know, for the most part, Kobe really acts as the Lakers primary ball handler. Yeah. I, I think it makes sense. I mean, there are plenty of times in this game where he hits someone with, I mean, just a, I guess what we would now consider like a very classic Kobe move. It's either like a hesitation or a, I don't remember him jab stepping as much, but he shakes defenders pretty well at, at even crucial points in this game. And I don't think there's anybody else on the team doing that. So I think it makes sense for him to bring the ball up. But then, you know, the Lakers so quickly get into the triangle offense that it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter after that. Yeah. I mean, they, they had, I mean, they're kind of copying basically the late 90s Bulls with the. Yeah. Ron Harper would just guard the point guard, but he wouldn't really play point guard. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean Derek Fisher again, I hate, hate him, sucks. Uh, couldn't couldn't let him run the show. Um, and then like Brian Shaw, Brian Shaw, like I, I hear so this is like a really popular game. Like for you know a lot of people just remember this game. Everyone remembers that alley oop and everything. Uh, there's they have no chance of winning this game without Brian Shaw. Like he, he makes that crazy bank three, uh, I think at the end of the third quarter that had no business going in. And then he just he just lights out from three the entire fourth quarter, uh, with Kobe like being the facilitator. The Lakers hit seven threes in this game and he had three of them. He's a plus twenty two in under seventeen minutes of action. Yeah, it was crazy. I don't I don't remember that at all. Like I remember this like I remember the teams. Um you know, I you remember I remember way more of like the Blazers roster than I do the Lakers roster because it was just it was just so top heavy, you know, just Shaq and Kobe mm-hmm. and, and a bunch of guys. Like I forgot that like Glenn Rice and Ron Harper were on this team. Um but like I just totally forgot how big of a role Shaw played in this game seven. 
I really don't know much about Ron Harper and we've, we've seen quite a bit of him in the Bulls documentary as well. Like, do you, do you know like what happened to him mid career? Like there's clearly an injury where he goes from averaging 20 a game with the Clippers in 94 to basically never averaging more than like eight or nine points a game the rest of his career. But I mean, through his first like seven NBA seasons, he's 19 points, five rebounds, five assists, two steals. I don't remember exactly what uh, happened, whether it was an injury or whatever. I just, I remember like he just kind of joined the Bulls like to go ring chasing, I'm pretty sure. And like was totally cool operating in that uh, role player role. I mean, I, I'm guessing he was putting up those numbers on terrible Clippers teams. Uh, uh, I mean, tough I, to say. You know, I don't know. I can't remember if the Clippers were really good in the '90s. <laughs> the power, the early '90s powerhouse Clippers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he ends up kind of having an Iguodala type of run at the end of his career. I mean, he won. He won five straight rings from '96 to '01. That's wild. Also worth noting that the Lakers undergo a huge facelift between the 99 and 2000 season. So in 98-99, again, this is a lockout shortened year. They only play 50 games, and the Lakers manage to have three different head coaches over the course of 50 games. It goes from Del Harris to Bill Burtka to Kurt Rambis. And 2000 is when they bring in Phil Jackson, and, and everything changes. So it's, you know, it's kind of weird to watch such a dominant team. Um, and you know, we remember the Lakers as you know this great just powerhouse for, for the beginning of the decade. But this was really the first year that they came into their own. I mean, they're, they're still, you know, this is their first title year. They, they obviously had two more to come and end up making the finals the year after that. But it, it wasn't really viewed as, as such a sure thing in, in 2000. I, I mean, I think getting Phil Jackson was a, obviously a huge bump. I mean, I looked at the preseason odds and it was uh, to win the title and it was Blazers first at, you know, basically three to one and then Lakers second at four to one. Um, so bringing in Phil was huge and every once in a while, you know, I mean, the, the, we, we've seen this happen plenty of times where there's this, you know, kind of like legendary team lying in wait and then a coaching change just, you know, it, it really just opens things up. Like we saw with the Warriors with uh, hiring Steve Kerr and even the Bucks, who, I mean, they haven't won a title, but the switch from Jason Kidd to Bugenholzer was insane. And I think that's kind of just what happened here. I'd like to talk about Arvidas Sabonis, if you guys don't mind, who in this game is going double knee brace, double wristband, plus like a giant ankle brace on on one of his ankles. And I mean, the legend around Sabonis is, you know, there's a reason he's in the Hall of Fame. It's not for what he did in the NBA. Um, You know, he played played seven full years in the NBA, but didn't come to Portland until age 31. This was after, you know, multiple injuries overseas. Um, but, but the Blazers drafted him in 1986 and held onto his rights for a full decade until he finally came over in, in 95, 96 ends up being a really good, solid NBA player, um, throughout the, the late nineties and into the two thousands had a year where he averaged 16 and 10 with three assists and one block started 73 games. Uh, but by this point in 99, 2000, he's, he's most certainly on the decline. He had his best year in terms of field goal percentage. Um, like you mentioned, Alex, he has a nice touch as a shooter. You know, he's a, a great free throw shooter for a guy of that size. He, he drains a couple in this game. He's 84% on the season, um, but just didn't really seem like he was properly utilized uh, based on his skill set. 
Uh, although at age at age 35 and with the mileage that he had on him, um, probably not. I, I think it would have been wrong to expect too much from him. Yeah, I mean, they, they messed around with, you know, playing him at the top of the key. It looked a little like Jokic at times. You know, they have a or at top of the three-point line where he'd throw entry passes and, and stuff like that. And, you know, Shaq, who was guarding him at, at points, would kind of sag off and that would just open up. You know, then then Sabonis could see everything and make great passes. But, I mean, it was, it, you know, it was obvious he's past his prime here. There's there's only so much he can. I mean, he's doing a great job on Shaq early on. And I know you know people have issues with the way the game was officiated later. But how long do you expect you know a 35 year old, 300 pound, are being a Sabonis with double knee braces to be able to stop prime Shaq? Like at some point he's just gonna get beaten down. But you know if you go and look at Sabonis' international stats on Basketball Reference, I mean they're crazy. You know he's playing in the Spanish league, which is probably second best league in the world, basically averaging 20 and 13 with two blocks and a steal, you know, on like 15 shots. So he was, he was dominant in Europe and um, it's unfortunate we didn't get to see more of him in the NBA because I think he would have been, he would have been really good. I really wish there was good footage of young Arvidas Sabonis because like it's, it's kind of one of those, uh, you know, legends, like it's kind of like an old wives tale about just like, how good Arvita Sabonis was before the injuries and everything like that. Um, and there's just like, everyone sort of describes him as basically current Nikola Jokic, basically that like everyone just talked about how amazing of a passer he was and stuff like that. Uh, it's hard to imagine him being like super athletic, although I, I think he probably was more athletic than Jokic. And it's just, you know, you don't really know, like the Spanish league's better now than it was back when he was playing in it. So it's tough to say exactly how the level of competition was back then. But uh, yeah, I really wish there was better stuff on YouTube of, of young Arbita Sabana. Right. It, it is kind of the same five to six clips that you usually see when, you know, when you come across an Arbita Sabonis video or, or feature on NBA TV or whatever it might be. We also have a young Bonzi Wells on this Portland yes. Trailblazers roster. Um, it really starts feeling it in the second quarter that kind of set off like a two minute span where it was just all Bonzi Wells. And that, that of course ended with him taking a wild shot over Kobe, clanking it off the backboard and then immediately committing a foul on the rebound. Bonzi Wells feeling it. Kobe Bryant forced him into a difficult shot. And then a loose ball foul. So sometimes... You got to corral that emotion and energy. The way Kobe is staying down, there's no gambling here. He's got size, strength, jumping ability over Bonzi. Wait for Bonzi to bring it into you and then just tap it away. I don't remember if it was Bill Walton, but at least one of the, the commentators was getting absolutely furious that Bonzi was not being fed the ball. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it was it was Bill Walton. Who was He was pissed that Bonzi wasn't getting more touches. Uh, but Bob Costas was appalled at, at, at some of Bondi Wells' play. So it was kind of a, there were two competing uh, voices from the booth on, on whether or not Bondi should be getting more touches. Uh, but he, I mean, obviously just totally looked like a black hole, but uh, the best the Blazers played in the entire game was when they went to the Sheed Pippen. Uh, Steve Smith, Bonte Wells, Sabonis lineup, and they basically had four wings with Sabonis, and 
like that was just giving the Lakers all kinds of trouble. That's how they built that 15 point lead. Mm-hmm. Um, getting David Stoudemire out of there was, was huge. Getting Brian Grant out of there. Um, like I thought that that was, that was their best lineup because it didn't really matter who had the ball. Like all four of those guys other than Sabonis could take their guy one-on-one and they were getting like every rebound at that point. Um, so I'm sure it was, you know, Mike Dunleavy, I'm sure he tried to tell Bonzi, like every time you touch the ball, you don't have to try to score. But um, yeah, I'm sure he was kind of a frustrating guy to coach at that stage of his career. Yeah, good good luck with that one. The, you kind of mentioned it, James. The Blazers basically got played off the floor whenever <clears throat> Brian Grant or and or Detlef Shrimp were on the floor. Brian Grant was a minus 14 in seven minutes and 49 seconds. Detlef Shrimp also a minus 14 in about 21 minutes. Sabonis plus 10. Damon Stoudemire somehow a plus six in his 19 minutes. Bonzi was positive. Um, but as, as soon as Brian Grant came in, like you, you could just tell on his face, you could tell by the way Bill Walton was talking about him, um, like kind of almost in like a sympathetic way by the time it got to the fourth quarter. Uh, but I, it's almost like the, the Blazers knew that they couldn't tread water when Sabonis was out of the game. I mean, using Damon Stoudemire to try to like push a ball in transition would have made sense. I mean, he's extremely fast, but like getting into that like clunky half court game, he's just going to make sense out there. And I mean, I I looked at the pace that this series was played at, uh, and it was 86.8, uh, which is I, insanely low, like 20 fewer possessions per game than than the modern NBA. But yeah, without Sabonis in there, it was it was pretty rough. I mean, they probably could have, you know, there could have been moments where they could have gone sheet at the five and tried to, you know, get Shaq to spend more time on the perimeter or something like that. But at the same time, like you, you also have to have Sabonis out there. So that idea doesn't really make sense. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem with Stoudemire is that he, once you got into the half court, like you said, Alex, it was basically him dribbling from one side of the three point line to like the other side of the three point line, like didn't really have any sort of plan, which is kind of dribbling. And then eventually it would sort of get close to the rack and, and he'd be in the trees and he'd miss a layup. Like he just was very, very like useless in the half court, unless he was off ball, like spotting up for three. And obviously on the other end, just couldn't really check anyone. So that was uh, sad to see, Uh, you know, great, great cat like that uh, be kind of a non-factor, especially, I mean, they basically didn't play him in the second half. Uh, So, you know, I think Steve Smith and Scotty Pippen were just as capable of running the offense and, and didn't take as much off the table. I want to ask you, James, where does Damon Stoudemire, who I'm contractually obligated to mention, is Salim Stoudemire's cousin, as well as Terrence Jones's cousin? I did not know that. Where where does he rank for you as like an all-time cat? Probably top top ten for sure. Uh, probably, probably just outside the top five. Okay. Who, who are the top three, if you don't mind? Arenas, Iguodala, Sean Elliott, maybe. Okay, that's actually a really strong top three. I thought for sure you were going to say Luke Walton. <laughs> no, I've 
I might have said Luke Walton before we rewatched that uh, Lakers game from, uh, from about a month ago. <laughs> that was embarrassing. Oh, man. Uh, I have one more note on Brian Grant. Is he the Festus Azili of this team? Oh, man. Like what Festus was to the 16 Warriors? I don't know, oh, man. When, whenever he's out there, it was just like an expose him situation. <laughs> I mean, well, see, I, I would think that maybe the better comparison would be like Anderson Barajal, um, yeah. Warriors, Warriors Barajal. Uh, Festus had that, like, you know, he gets remembered for how bad he was. Um, was that in the finals? Or, yeah, yeah. Like, he gets remembered for that. But I think Festus Azili's highs were higher than Brian Grant's highs. Like during his I time disagree. <laughs> I disagree. Brian Grant averaged twelve and ten one year. What are his highs? What are Azili's highs? I rem- I remember him like looking like he was going to be decent. I I I don't know. I yeah. Like look, the the results don't back up what I'm saying. But um, like. <laughs> Like, did you see that shot Brian Grant took in this game? Like, that just almost broke the backboard. Like, he was. Yeah, I did. He, I mean, Festus Azili's not taking that shot. Uh, yeah, the the main difference between Grant and Azili is that Grant managed to have an 11 year career and make 100 million dollars. Like, he had a lot leading up to this. There wasn't like a lot. Like, all of a sudden, Festus Azili kind of just appeared, and everyone knew his name because his name was Festus Azili. Like, this is different. Like, I like the Verizhao comparison because there was like. There's a lot of lead up there. There's some there's some backstory of this guy just keeps getting jobs, but every time he's on the court, the other team just <laughs> continues to expose him. And am I remembering that like Nick, who who was a more embarrassing center for Steve Kerr to go to out of Barajal and Festus? I think it was Azili in sixteen. Maybe at least in the finals. Or maybe I'm just remembering it because of what happened in game seven. But I, I think he he gets most of the blame other than Harrison Barnes for that entire debacle. Like, I, I, I mean, think he just—he was unplayable by the end of it. But, he never played in the NBA again after that game. Um, I remember it being more inexplicable to me that Verajao was getting run in one of those playoffs than uh, Zeli. Like, I, like Verajao was just so cooked and so so much of a liability defensively. Uh, he was just always falling down. And then, like, see, I, I think all the blame has to go to those perimeter guys, like their top five guys. Like, Harrison Barnes couldn't make a three. Steph Curry had some terrible plays. Like, like to me, you put the blame on those guys. Like, they weren't built around their center at that point anyway. It was basically Draymond True. Green was their center. Like, I don't, I think it's unfair to put the blame on a guy who had no part in them doing anything that year, really. So here are Festus Azili and Anderson Verjao from Game 7 of the 2016 Finals. Both were minus 9. Azili played 11 minutes. Verjao played 9 minutes. They combined to go 0-5 from the field, 1-2 of at the line, 2 assists, 1 rebound, 5 fouls. (laughs) It's incredible. One total point. I I bet Verjao ended up on the ground 7 times in those (laughs) 9 minutes. (laughs) He was one of the elite fallers. Which is funny because I remember it being it was a big deal when they got him, mostly because of his history with LeBron and the Cavs. But I think people kind of saw him as like this secret, you know, he's double agent. He's switching sides and going to the Warriors <laughs> to get this ring. And then it obviously completely backfires for him. I mean, I think that's it's more like uh, it's more like when like Kendrick Perkins joined the Cavs. Um, 
like just so washed. So like he was just there on reputation. I think the ultimate example of that is Eric Dampier, who some like missed all of the throughout his entire career was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like he he leaves Dallas in 2010 just to go chase a ring with Miami and then and then uh, obviously loses to Dallas in the finals in 2011 and then leaves the Heat to go sign with Atlanta and the Heat immediately win the title. <laughs> I think there might be some chicken or the egg thing there. <laughs> <laughs> That's not possible. Um, one more one more note on Bonzi Wells. He is the all-time leading scorer and steals leader in the MAC conference. And he broke Ron Harper's scoring record in college. So we have the two all-time leading scorers in the MAC, both in this game. Bonzi Wells was the MAC player of the year in 96. He lost the belt in 97, came back, got it back in 98. So two-time MAC player of the year, but not consecutive years. So he was a fo- he went was he a four-year player? I think he had to be right if he set. If he has a career yeah. scoring for a cop, it's got to be. It's four. I'm he, looking at it now. He does not. He he does not play like a four-year cop. Player. <laughs> like, like if you not didn't know all. anything about Bonzi Wells, you would just guess that he went straight to the league out of high school. Yeah, I would like guess that he came out. He like <laughs> skipped eleventh and twelfth grade. It just came out after sophomore year. Yeah, yeah. No, he. I mean, his college numbers are actually pretty ridiculous. There's no minutes played data for his senior year. That's the most confusing part of all of this. It's been redacted. (laughs) Do you you guys think there's anything to what I was saying earlier about how uh, Dunleavy should have cut the rotation down to like, and I know, I know like Sabonis fouled out at the end, like, but um, like, I just, I think the margin for like, you knew the Lakers were going to get some calls in the fourth quarter. Like they were on the road. they, the best two players in the game were on the other team. Like, I just, I don't think there was any room for them to be giving minutes to um, some like Stoudemire, Grant. Like, I, like, I, I still stand by that, that they should have gone with Jermaine O'Neal whenever Sabonis was out, just because like this was 2000 and the Lakers were treating Brian Grant like Terrence uh, or. Uh, Tony Allen, like guys like that get treated like 10 years later where like it was, teams weren't just leaving guys, but they were just leaving Brian Grant. Like I, I feel like they needed to shorten that rotation. Uh, and they just sort of had too many quality guys for him to feel good about shortening it. But like it, they clearly, whenever those bad guys were off the court, they excelled and then they would kind of take a step back whenever one of them would come in. You think maybe Schrempf could have seen more minutes somewhere? Like, I, I, well, I'm mostly surprised he didn't take a single three-pointer in this game, which I don't know how you played that last Schrempf 21 minutes and don't kick him a three-pointer. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, I, I, don't, I don't hate that he played the minutes that he did, but I, he went three for three from the field, but I, I didn't feel like he had a great game. Like, I, I think he, like you said, you need him to space the floor more than he did. Yeah, because you... You just kind of had like 10 minutes where it's Sheet at the five and Schrempf at the four. And that would have made more sense than half the other stuff they tried. And I, I, I definitely think Sheed was one of those guys who um, strongly felt that he should not ever play center. Like that's right. just such a, it's <laughs> such a time honored tradition among yep. uh, like power forward, like tweener types from, kind of that like it center used to be like a glamour position like in the 
like nineties and eighties and stuff. Like there wasn't any shame in being the center, but um, like the, from like 2000, like 99, 98, 2000, like all the way till today, there's just a certain type of tweener guy that just hates playing center. Um, and I think that that definitely applied to him. He never played more than 16% of his minutes at center until he was 32. So that was 06, 07. And then at that point, he had to play center. I can't really like, like nobody wants to guard Shaq. I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, in, in this matchup, I, I sort of get it, but I, I don't think it was just exclusive to when they were playing Shaq. No, I don't think anybody had conceived of the idea that, hey, what if we put him at the five and make Shaq guard him on the perimeter? That would have been, uh, that's a huge what if. For the entire league, not even she. Like, there, people were not, I, I think the league was just entirely afraid of Shaq, like defending Shaq, that nobody really thought to ever turn the tables on him. And the, the way, oh. the only way I guess they did that was hack a Shaq. And then, you know, that's not and, really what we're talking about. But like, the, the, the reason why you needed to try to turn the tables on him is because none of those guys, like, none of the Brian Grant types, um, were, having any it's not like they were stopping him right like even when you put some big 260 pound center who can't do anything on offense even when you put that guy on Shaq he still has his way with him so it's not like you're gaining some edge by putting a guy like that in there like he's gonna do the same thing to Jermaine O'Neal that he's gonna do to Brian Grant and at least if you have someone that can do something uh on the offensive end to bring him away from the basket at least you're hurting him on that end I have one final note, James, on Bonzi Wells. He's the only player in NBA history to be traded for Scooney Penn. <laughs> Man, I'm surprised Scooney Penn was ever involved in an NBA trade. Yeah, it was as a second round pick. And of course, Scooney Penn did not ever play in the NBA. He played two seasons for something called the Asheville Altitude. So let's get to the end of this game. Uh, as we as we kind of hit on at the top, this was a game in which despite being at home, the Lakers really struggled for a lot of it. It was a game of runs where it seemed like Portland would build a 10 to 15 point lead. And then the Lakers would whittle it down to five or six. And then Portland would build it back up and the Lakers would make a little comeback. Um, but at one point it was 68 53 in favor of Portland with under a minute left um, in the fourth quarter or in the third quarter, excuse me. And they end up being up 13, 71 to 58 heading into the fourth. And, Portland has, at this point, an extreme drought. I mean, one of, one of the biggest droughts that you'll ever see, especially given the stage, they go from the 10-28 mark to the 258 mark in the fourth quarter without scoring a single point, not without hitting a field goal, without scoring at all. They get a Bonzi Wells free throw uh, at 10-28, and then the next, next point for Portland is a Rasheed Wallace layup at the 258 mark. And despite that, they're still up two at that point, um, but... You know, Rasheed Wallace, as much as I like him, he had a good game. You know, he had 30, but it has a, a lot of tough misses down the stretch when Portland really needed a basket. And with under two minutes to go, um, you know, he does hit a, a jump shot to tie the game at 79. The Lakers come down. Kobe gets fouled. Somewhat of a questionable call. He had four guys around him, decided to go up anyway, probably gets hit. Uh, ends up hitting both free throws, which, as we'll get to, was not a guarantee for Kobe in this game. Rasheed Wallace on the other end ends up missing two free throws, which was huge at the time. And, you know, with as the final minute and a half ticks down, just looked you know, even worse. Kobe comes down then, has Scottie Pippen on him, does a little in and out, and then hits a big pull-up two-pointer from about 15 feet 
to put the Lakers up four. Bryant made two. Wallace missed two. Lakers by two. It's Kobe again. A 20-point swing. Once down by 16, they lead by four. On the other end, Portland comes down and Scottie Pippen just immediately jacks up a three from the wing, which given the time and situation, it was just under a minute. They're down four. Um, you know, obviously not a two for one, but you start thinking about, you know, maximizing your possessions at this point. Did you guys think that was a little bit of a reckless three by Scotty? Yeah. I mean, he kind of, you know, Sabonis tries to set him a screen, uh, or sorry, it was Sheed. And as soon as he sees the defender shade, just a, uh, like a, an inch to, you know, kind of play that he just pulls up and yeah, I don't think that was a great shot. I mean, that's one of those shots that you feel like you can get almost at any point in a possession. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he just got, Scotty just got scored on. So maybe he felt like he had to respond. I, in, in Scotty's defense, uh, the shot selection by his teammates in that entire fourth quarter was pretty atrocious. Like there was just, um, like Rashid had some bad misses that he probably like kind of, kind of, uh, you, you could tell on a couple of them, like he, it, it wasn't his normal shot for him. Like it, you wonder if like the pressure was maybe getting to him a little bit. He missed those free throws, but like Bonds, he had some terrible shots. Steve Smith had some terrible shots. Like there, there were all of his teammates were taking terrible shots. And I'm sure that he was kind of annoyed at how, <laughs> how bad the shots they were taking was. So he was kind of thinking like, well, if we're going to go down, I want to at least try to do my thing here because, I mean, he's probably their best bet for a contested three-pointer in, in this situation. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it, not an ideal shot by any stretch, but far from the worst shot uh, selection in that quarter. Yeah, the, the Brian Grant shot that you referenced earlier yeah. was during this stretch as well. Yeah. At the 230 <laughs> mark, he almost shatters the backboard and they almost had to stop the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Scotty shot, I mean, I'm, I'm with you guys. It's one of those, like if he makes it, you know, maybe it changes the course of the game. All of a sudden Portland's down one. And we talk about what a ballsy shot it was by Scotty Pippen, but, um, a little bit of a rush, like you said, Alex, a shot that if you need to, you can probably get 15 seconds later if nothing is there. But after the Pippen miss that sets up one of the more iconic moments from the entire Lakers three peat. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Yeah, we have Kobe, who just scored on Scotty by breaking him down with this in-and-out move. Scotty comes down to miss a three. Kobe ends up with the ball in his hands after the rebound. Scotty's on him again. He, I think, waves off someone who is considering setting a screen for him. And then he hits <laughs> he hits Scotty with this uh, crossover that sends... Uh, he it sends Scotty flying. It's 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 embarrassing, and so then he's he's driving to the basket. All four, I guess, all five Trailblazers players uh, run to try to stop Kobe from shooting this 14 footer, and Shaq is basically in the dunker spot at that point. Goes up and catches. I mean, it's one of the most iconic alley oops probably in NBA history, but just an absolute. <laughs> 
not a good not a good sequence for Scotty Pippen to end this game. Well, you wonder. I mean, this this iconic alley oop probably never happens if Kobe wasn't such a chucker uh, the rest of the game. Like you, Nick, you mentioned like when he attempted that shot in the lane, surrounded by four Blazers. <laughs> like I'm. I think it's a safe bet usually to just assume that Kobe's going to take the shot. So like you run over, you're like, well, there's no way he's passing here. Like that type of yeah. mindset. Right. Um, so they made the right bad play. defense, bad defense for sure, but not the type of defense you would play on almost any other player, but you just sort of assume Kobe's going to take that shot. I mean, it was, it was a nasty, it was a nasty crossover and not one that yeah. we generally see at, in this era. I mean, this was kind of yeah. the start of like the Allen Iverson, like the cross, I guess the crossover era. And I just don't think he, Scotty was ready for it. The celebration by Shaq after the dunk is almost more iconic than the dunk itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great celebration. No one, uh, it's weird. Like watching these games from, I guess probably like pre 2010, People just celebrated differently. I don't know how you explain it. There was a lot more like fist pumping and like pointing and just like <laughs> also, hyping yourself up after making a layup in contact. Also, um, like for instance, if it's Dwayne Wade, like throwing that lob to LeBron James, like LeBron James immediately like celebrates with Dwayne Wade like Kobe throws the lob to Shaq and Shaq just runs right by Kobe and celebrates <laughs> with the guys on the bench. Yeah, Kobe, you can see Kobe reaches out for like a hand, like a high five as, as Shaq is running back. Shaq doesn't even look at him. Yeah, Shaq's like, I don't, whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so down the stretch, I mean, that basically put it away. Uh, that, that puts the Lakers up 85-79 with 49 seconds left. But Portland comes back and Rashid immediately hits a really, really deep three, which leaves Bill Walton in awe that anybody could shoot the ball from that far and make it. So it's 85-82 with 34 seconds left. The game is not over at all. And this is when the Lakers free throw issues really come to a head. I mean, Ron Harper ends up missing the front end uh, of a double bonus on the next possession. The possession after that, Kobe misses two. Robert Horry ends up making two and then immediately missing two the following possession. And then Horry misses another one with about two seconds left, but Portland ends up taking some really bad shots. You know, they're kind of frazzled times running down. You're on the road. Um, but I, I think there's an opportunity here for Portland to at least like kind of make this a game at the end. If they just hit one more shot over the course of the final 30 seconds, because of just how bad the Lakers free throw shooting was. Well, do you guys think, um, so they, they fouled when they were down three with 33 seconds left. Mm-hmm. And, I think that was Harper who went one for two, right? Yep. And that's correct. They're up four. Like, do you think they made the right decision to foul down three with 33 seconds left? I don't think so. No, I think there's enough time. Yeah. I I mean, I think you're looking at probably, and again, you have to assume you're getting a stop or the strategy doesn't make any sense. If you assume you're getting a stop, the worst case scenario is you have like eight or nine seconds on the clock. I, I mean, I think the, the best case for fouling is that Sabonis is fouled out and you're worried that you might not get a rebound on a miss because mm-hmm. Shaq's just bigger than everyone. Uh, but you also have 24 seconds to try to force a turnover. Right. You could maybe end up getting Shaq to be the guy that's at the line, depending on how things work out. Um, 
I I just thought it was a very weird decision to foul Ron Harper with down three with 33 seconds to go there. I wonder if Dunleavy called for that or if it was just a panic foul. You know, as soon as Sheed hits the three, you know, everybody's kind of scrambling. And then maybe maybe somebody thought that they had less time on the clock than actually was left. Yeah, that, I mean, you never know who. I mean, it definitely could have been a player there. but mm-hmm. So we know what happens from here. The Lakers, of course, advance to the NBA Finals and end up getting their first uh, title of the Kobe Shaq era. Uh, they beat the Indiana Pacers 4-2. to two. Um, let's empty out the notes guys, anything that we missed, uh, at all pertaining to this game, anybody on either roster. I thought it was a really, really, really good move by Phil Jackson to leave Shaq in. He, he picked up his third foul with six minutes to go in the second quarter and Phil left him in for almost the entire rest of the quarter. And I think a ton of coaches would have pulled him there, maybe even most coaches and, Shaq, like he leaves him in, Shaq then just gets back-to-back buckets, kind of keeps them in that game. I mean, I think they were down like eight or ten points probably when Shaq picks up that third foul. And I think if he'd pulled him there, like I think a lot of coaches probably pull him for the rest of the half. If they'd pull him there, they might be down like 20 at halftime. So I thought that that was a really good call. Yeah, I think think leaving guys in is – I mean, in this situation, I feel like you just – you're. I feel like you just leave him in. I can understand, like, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I guess I'm more in favor of leaving guys in. He only picked up one more foul the rest of the game. So kind of. And a couple of his right fouls were yeah. offensive. Like, I, I didn't feel like there was a huge risk. Like, like Sabonis guarding Shaq, you just know. He, like, if he, if he plays 30 minutes, he's going to foul out. Like, it's just going to happen. Like, he didn't feel like Shaq was going to be put in a situation where he was going to be picking up fouls the rest of the way based on who he was guarding. Well, and then uh, I also have a note that, um, like you asked before we started recording, Nick, like whether this the officiating was as bad as some people make it out to be. Uh, I would say it, it was not for uh, the competitive portion of the game, but there's a play at the end where they're up, the Lakers are up four, and Shaq just fouls the crap out of Steve Smith on a on a <laughs> drive, and and like they didn't call and call foul there, so. Um, you could point to that if, if you're a Blazers fan, you want to say they were getting the calls in the fourth quarter. Yeah, they were probably getting they were probably getting some home cooking in the fourth quarter, but I don't think it was extremely egregious. And I think it it's pretty clear that the Blazers lost this game. I don't think the refs lost it for them. The Steve Smith one was insane, and I, I think it was late enough in the game where at the time you're kind of like, oh, whatever. You know, it, it happens with 19 seconds left, but the Blazers are only yeah. down four. And with the way that L.A. ends up shooting free throws, like, that would have mattered big time. Yeah, I mean, you never know. I mean, I'm sure the Lakers win probability at that point, even if they call that foul, is probably over 90%. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was just such a, like, what are you not, what did you not see? What did you need to see to blow the whistle? (laughs) It was just such a bizarre no call. Bill Walton was, again, all over that one. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they thought that if you just fly into Shaq and you land on your ass, that that's supposed to happen. But it did seem like Shaq jumped forward. Oh yeah, and not straight up. So it looked it looked way worse on the replay that they showed. Like in real time, you it was like, oh, like maybe Shaq. They gave him like the verticality rule or whatever. But on the, on the replay, it was an egregious no call. Also, Shaq could have just not jumped there at all and waited for yes. Steve Smith to. Uh, 
like put the ball in the air and then he could have just blocked the crap out of it. So um, very unnecessary. I think my, my favorite play in this entire game that we haven't talked about yet was uh, do you guys remember like the, I think it was like a give and go from Brian Shaw to Kobe at the end of the first half where like, it was just a really small window and Shaw hit him for a, I think it was like a left-handed dunk maybe. Um, I thought that play was, was really, really cool. Just the, the pass and the finish. No, that was, that was it. I remember the dunk. I don't remember the pass. I'll have to go back and check that out. I think my favorite play was perhaps the most egregious charge that I've ever seen with Robert Horry flying through the air and ending up like kicking the defender to the yeah, floor. Yeah. And then, and then Bill Walton looking, yeah. seeing the replay and saying, Oh, that's a tough call. Yeah, I know. that was great. Like, or he didn't even get, he didn't even get a shot off. Like he just held, he like just held the ball and like kicked right. the guy down in the chest. Yeah. In, it's like in midair, he decided like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to kick this guy. And then Walton's like ah, 50, 50 call. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, we haven't really touched on Horry at all in this game, but this this is pretty early, Robert Horry. Um, you know, he's at age 29. He already has two titles in Houston. Uh, obviously ends up winning more with LA and more with San Antonio. He was going with some very subtle mutton chops, which I, I would not have associated with Robert Horry. It was a, a lot of interesting hair in this game. We had, we had that. Damon Stoudemire is going cornrows plus goatee, a very 2000 Look, we have this is Froby, one of the final years of Kobe actually having hair. Brian Grant's dreads, of course. Oh, of course, I mean that that goes without saying. I mean, Ori had a like he, I think he did get like a rebound or something, and then he just dribbled it back out and yanked a three and, and buried that. Uh, but they they said, uh, I think he was like one for his last nineteen from three at some point in this series, um, which is kind of a something that you don't think of when you think of Robert Ory in the playoffs. Yeah. I don't, I don't know at what point in his career he officially became like big shot Bob. I mean, probably a couple of years after this, at least. It, it had to have been that one, uh, that one where it like finds him at the top of the key. I think it's against the Kings maybe. Um, I think he established himself as big shot Bob, on the Lakers and then carried it over with the Spurs. Yep. You're right. That was 2002 against the Kings. That that's kind of the play that I sort of remember being like, Oh man, this dude, like, yeah. Only other things I have in my notes, uh, the Scotty sucks chant that was going on early in the game. Uh, very anti Scotty crowd in LA. And I, I can't believe you haven't brought this up, James the Magic Johnson mid-game interview where he just trashes the Lakers for two minutes wearing a polo, but instead of with buttons, it has a zipper. (laughs) (sighs) What's has a modern Shad's relationship with like the best players from that era. Like, like I, why is he like best friends with Michael? Like you can tell, like only a modern Shad would have gotten that interview with magic there. Like, just I need I need to see like a thirty for thirty on just how Ahmad Rashad's becomes such good buddies with all these NBA players. Yeah, I don't know because he's I mean he's obviously prominently featured in the Jordan doc too, and he's quite a bit older than MJ, right? Yeah, I think he just turned seventy. Did any Ahmad Rashad? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he was a, he was an NFL player, right? Yeah, 
and then he so he was retired and then he becomes an NBA reporter, basically kind of like a like a Craig Sager type of reporter and he's hosting NBA inside stuff and everything, but just like the guys who became Michael Jordan's best friends is one of the more fascinating things to be for that documentary. Cause there's that other guy that like looks like he's like from like the disco era that like, like on, on his credits, it's like um, former, like something, something and best friend of Michael Jordan. And you just <laughs> could not, you could not find a guy to look less like you'd imagine Michael Jordan's best friend to look like. I was listening to a podcast. I don't I don't know what that guy's name is either, but I listened to a podcast about the documentary and the director said that Michael Jordan personally requested that that guy be listed as his best friend. <laughs> what? So, yeah, he said he um, called like he called like days before it aired and was like, "Hey, can we change this? I need him to be listed as my best friend." That is really wild. The charge circle is dotted. It's like a dotted line in this game. I can't think of anything more nonsense for like, there's no reason it should be dotted. Like how are you supposed to know if a player's foot is like in front of it or behind it when it's in the spots in between. Um, and at one point Rashid Wallace is, uh, misses a dunk, but I did respect that even on the missed dunk, he slapped glass. And that <laughs> made me wonder why nobody slaps glass anymore. It's a tech, isn't it? Oh, that's horrible. Oh, that should not be a tag. I know they don't always call it because LeBron does it and doesn't get teed up, but I think it's technically supposed to be a technical foul. It definitely is in like high school and college. I can see that, but I feel like in the NBA, that should be fair game. Oh, I, you know, I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, the part two to the Rashid thing, too, is the next possession, he gets a, a dunk and makes sure that he finishes. Like, it's way up there on, a, on just like a drop step dunk. Yeah, you can't miss. I mean, if you miss a dunk, uh, you got you got to make sure the next one's going in. I think those were the only two. Yeah, those are the only two notes that I have left. Other than, I mean, I, I I have written down that Kobe at one point in the fourth quarter takes a pull up contested mid ranger on a fast break. It could have ended up being a lot more disastrous had this game been closer. And but it was one of his only. There wasn't too much of that going on in this game, so it it didn't end up factoring in too much i mean it was much more egregious than uh the other kobe game that we watched yeah i mean kobe only taking 19 shots in this game pretty low number i mean it was by far the most on the lakers but in a game where Shaq only took nine shots um you know it was, it was pretty evenly distributed for la i mean you had one two three four five six guys who took at least um six field goals yeah, he was, a, he was a lot more reserved in the series, and I think that makes sense given, you know, kind of the point in his career where Shaq was, um, stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, we're still... Uh, he, he jumped from 22 points a game this year to 29 the next year. So I, I, I think we're kind of like one year away from Kobe truly becoming the Kobe that we know now. Right. Uh, Shaq took 99 free throws in this series, which unbelievable that's a lot of free throws yeah all right fellas does that do it yeah i think so all right another one in the book i don't know where we're gonna go next week there's been a lot of banter in the chat uh about what to do next we could go back to a draft you know i personally would love to do a dunk contest i know there's not a lot of support for that outside of me 
Um, but we'll, uh, we'll conference over the next couple of days and be back with another one next Tuesday. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.